Hello, and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy online event, Not Suitable for Work, which is part of this year's LSE Festival, Shaping the Post-COVID World, a week of virtual events, free and open to all, about the direction the world could and should be taking after the COVID crisis. My name is Sarah Fine. I'm a fellow at the Forum for Philosophy, and I teach philosophy at King's College London. This year, the LSE Festival is adapting to the new normal, with all events taking place online and streamed via Zoom and the Festival Hub, the online home of the LSE Festival. Do visit the Festival Hub to access all festival content, including live events via Zoom, as well as Festival Shorts, a series of pre-recorded 10-minute talks. The Twitter hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Festival. And this online event is being recorded and All Being Well should be available as a podcast too. There are also closed captions available at this event. To view them, please click on the CC button at the bottom of your screen. We welcome your questions for our speakers and to submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Our subject today is work and idleness. And I'm thrilled to welcome our distinguished panel. Odil Boskert is Senior Lecturer in International Human Resource Management at the University of Sussex Business School, where she's also Director of the Future of Work Research Hub. Brian O'Connor is Professor of Philosophy at University College Dublin. And Judy Wiseman is the Anthony Giddens Professor of Sociology at the LSE. Professor Weissman's project, Women in Data Science and AI with the Alan Turing Institute, has a report coming out on Monday, which is International Women's Day, on the lack of women in AI. So thank you all so much for joining us. And first, I'd like to ask our panel, what is work and why do we do so much of it? So, Odil, would you mind getting us started with this one? Uh, What a task, Sarah, but I'll give it a go. Um, First of all, uh, a qualifier, I wasn't aware that the title Not Suitable for Work has a certain frisson uh, that my 20-year-old university student niece uh, alerted me to, which I'm not sure we're going to be able to deliver it. It might be that thinking thoroughly about what we do at work and what it all means might not be suitable for uh, work for many of us. Uh, uh, and I look forward to hearing sort of uh, uh, from Judy and Brian. I'll just try and set the scene. So, of course, uh, we are all supposed to have our 30-second elevator pitches in these days when we're all freelancers of some kind. Uh, but it is still very difficult to define what work is, and academics will usually give you the range of meanings rather than giving you the definitive meaning. So I'll just sort of share some thoughts about what work uh, might mean. So obviously there's a sense that it's activity uh, and the dispensation of some effort, whether it's mental or physical or emotional, towards the achievement of a goal. Uh, We tend to refer to ants or bees when we talk about sort of hard work, uh, but it's work is uh, fundamentally a human endeavor. It's one of those endeavors that define us uh, as humans. Um, there is no shortage of things we can work around. We can work a room if we are in the same room with increasingly more difficult these days. Uh, we can work on ourselves. We can work on a project. We can work on a range of things. But I think today uh, and in everyday speech, when we say work, we're typically talking about employment and uh, employment typically being the sort of source of material and uh, 
subjective rewards that provide our sustenance and for the vast majority of us, though not all of us, uh, our livelihood. Um, so um, work is very fundamental to how we exist as societies. Uh, it's an economic relationship, obviously, in the sense that we're talking about it today, but it's also a deeply social relationship. It uh, sets the terms in many ways in terms of how we relate to each other, the, the power differentials in our communities, in our societies, um, and uh, sort of uh, how um, social change can occur and social order is maintained. Sort of, I'm giving away that I'm a sociologist by sort of referring to these four concepts, I suppose. Um, so um, it's also a source of our uh, understanding of ourselves. It's uh, very symbolically sort of heavy and work is many things uh, to many of us. It's both very vivid, very tangible, very immediate, very real, very mundane, uh, very routine. But it's also at the same time very ambiguous, very sort of deeply meaningful, very open to debate. We have very ambivalent feelings about it. So both in terms of our material relations and in terms of our subjective being in the world, sort of work is just one of those core things. So that's why I don't have a quick definition of what work is really. Um, one of the things we are taking for granted when we talk about work as employment is it's within the context of capitalism, it's the C word. Uh, uh, and of course, capitalism doesn't exist in one form. There's varieties of capitalism. So even though the core tenets of capitalism is implemented across the world, it's organized in very different ways. So work is organized in very different ways. Uh, the, the formal rules and the informal rules vary uh, vastly. Um, so um, for me, I suppose one of the, probably the key concept I work with when I think about work is variability, that work is very different across different contexts, whether those are national contexts, different occupations, different skills groups, different demographics, etc. Um, and I will sort of tie that with the one of the, the orientation question for this debate, which was uh, the, the culture of overwork. So I would probably question whether we work too much. Historically, we're probably working less than we did in the peak of the industrial capitalism, when uh, sort of a, a, a rural workforce was faced, um, forced to the factories, um, but then regulation and the double movement of the state coming back in to sort of protect workers' rights kicked in. So historically speaking, we're probably not working overworked, uh, but also some of us are still currently overworked, though not all of us. I guess I'll leave that there, Sarah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll sort of leave it in your hands to sort of steer us forward. Thank you. That was a, a brilliant start. And I see Judy wants to come straight in. So Judy, please do. You're still muted. <laughs> I, sorry. Um, I completely agree with every, everything you said. I'm just going to literally sort of add one uh, feminist sociologist of work, which is that one of the main things we've been, we, you know, feminist sociologists of work have been uh, thinking about now for decades is trying to extend the notion of work in the, in, in the sense of including lots of unpaid work, that there's a lot of work that's done that's unpaid work as well as paid work. And, of course, we mainly talk about employment and work um, in terms of employment, but I think it's very important to kind of extend the notion to lots of work that goes on that's unpaid. I mean, feminist economists have done a lot of work in recent years um, in terms of even national accounts. You know, how does the government um, make calculations about work and how important it is to take into account care work, unpaid work, lots of other work. And, I mean, the other thing I think has been sort of interesting in terms of a lot of feminist work is, is relatively recent concepts like um, aesthetic labour, emotional labour, you know, trying to think about, well, you know, air hostesses or, you know, I mean, lots of different kinds of work 
um, there are lots of elements to care work, say, that are that are emotional, that are not recognised as part of what the work is. So trying to extend our notion of what work is. So I'm just literally adding to what you've said, Odal. Yes. Uh, uh, we're having a love fest here. So I absolutely, of course, <laughs> agree with all of that. Uh, of course, sort of, I, I was sort of working from the premise of what, what people, what we generally sort of in popular yeah. speech assume, but of course this capitalocentrism, some have called it, this idea that sort of a, it's, it's, it's the variables that matter for capitalist production that, is, that traditionally be counted as work. Uh, that, that's sort of a very sort of biased view. And of course, it sort of ignores all the sort of deleted work, for example, Lynn Pettinger calls this, or invisible work. And feminist uh, uh, sociologists and sort of scholars uh, uh, have paved the way for us to be alert to all the ways in which work is not remunerated in the capitalist sort of wage relationship, sort of labor as commodity. And actually, this is one of the exciting things going forward. I think we're going to probably talk about this in relation to the pandemic, all the sorts of work uh, that we've become uh, aware of, uh, that we always knew existed, but we've sort of become more sensitized to, I think, uh, sort of being stuck in our homes. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Thank you. And Brian, did you want to come in here? Oh, I always think it's very interesting when common assumptions we have get punctured. And I thought it very interesting, Odo, when you said that we're actually historically not overworking, but yet we're always claiming that we are. So I have to assume what's happened is that the middle classes are working more than ever. And therefore, the claim is much more uh, loudly made uh, that we're working more th uh, than ever. It's their experiences that, of course, are dominating this discussion of, of the escalations in work. And I just wonder whether you, but whether you would agree that, that that is true, surely, because, I mean, uh, as, as Judy's work uh, has shown and many of us feel from experience, we're pursued from morning till night by our work in a way that surely was never possible in the past or is that something that's not measured uh, in your sense of how much we're working i think okay. the middle classes tend to the knowledge producers if you will tend to sort of uh, bias some of our understandings of things but actually i looked up the legislation about this in detail and uh, there is of course legislation about sort of uh, what counts as overwork and how many hours maximum you're supposed to work in the uk that's 48 hours by legislation but there are some professions that are exempt so I, read, I will read this sort of a, um, a domestic servant, for example, exempt, so they can work around the clock. There's no so, sort of a uh, cap, if you will, uh, or any working time where it's not measured, where you're in control. And I think as academics, we're in that category, and so are executive managers. So when you talk about um, extreme work, so people working over 70 hours a week, of course, there's a lot of white-collar managerial workers in that, and they're the ones who are vocal, or they're the ones we study. So either they have voice or we give them voice. But if you look at, for example, the Trade Union Congress has a list of uh, most hours worked and the top 20 professions don't have any managers. The farmers are the ones with the longest working hours in the UK in 2019. Gardeners, horticultural workers, shopkeepers. But we don't really uh, sort of enter the debate from their perspective. So, yes, there is a sort of knowledge producer and managerialist, I would say, not just academics, but sort of uh, the ones, you know, managers like to, you know, think about how hard they're working. No, I mean, I agree completely. And can I just add to that, that one of the, um, you know, one of the surveys in industrial relations that's been done for, for many years, actually, has been about the intensification of work as well as hours of work, right? So, you know, Brian, one of the discussions is about, well, even if we're not working more hours, I mean, is the work more intensified? Have a lot of the new ways in which our work is measured and, you 
um, accounted for, you know, performance accounting and the measurement of those things, does that re result in an intensification of work as well as or, you know, um, actual hours of work? Yeah, so it's slightly sort of different issue. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So I, I think this is actually the perfect moment to start reflecting a bit on idleness. And yeah. Brian, uh, you're the author of Idleness, a philosophical essay, which was published in 2018. Would you mind at this point giving us a brief introduction to philosophical debates about idleness and including your own argument about the relationship between idleness and freedom? I'll do my best. Well, thank I'm, you. I'm, as we know, to add every human civilization, there's always been a worry about idleness on a, an almost intuitively primitive sense of egalitarianism. There's not right that some people should work and others get off uh, and, uh, and have the pleasure of being fed with no uh, effort expended on their part. But it's much more interesting when ideologies attach themselves to criticisms of idleness. And we can see a certain strand of that in our own Western traditions where we have a fear that idleness leads to degeneracy. That's a very specific kind of claim. Um, and this is the worry that uh, the individual who's not properly disciplined, who doesn't have a routine, who hasn't made a kind of a strict practice of work, their, their daily structure is open to all kinds of temptations and moral degeneracy. So, I mean, that, so that, that, that's, that's around, and that view possibly even still persists. But what became very interesting, I thought, was to see that in the modern age, I, what, what, well, what is that? It's a rather vague and easily thrown out term, 1700s, 1800s, whatever. But the appearance of well-organized societies with uh, the, the development of an industry and an understanding of the economy of how these places worked, uh, the idleness became something different. It's not so much that idleness should be avoided because you might degenerate into some kind of immoral uh, being, but that you might actually miss out on the opportunity to fulfill yourself in some important and impressive way. And this is something that comes across in a number of the, the prominent philosophers for that period. It's not to neglect our inner potential. It's almost like the self becomes, the person becomes a site of work. Um, and at the, at the most glorious moments of philosophy, you even see the dangers of idleness associated with the possibility that we might miss out on uh, realizing ourselves as autonomous beings. So autonomy is something that involves a lot of self-work, of self-discipline. And given that it's the highest state, it's the state of worthiness, to use a term that you see in the literature at the time, it's a state of worthiness. It's clear that we have to avoid idleness because without, uh, be, because with idleness, we miss out on the opportunity to realize ourselves in this impressive way. Now, what's also, there, there are all kinds of strands here, but this autonomy in itself sounds like a fine thing, but you sometimes see that the notion of autonomy is clearly indexed to some kind of social usefulness as well. It's not just moral autonomy, but it's the capacity to be an agent who's effective in your society. And that is often um, cashed out in terms of one's ability to be useful. Uh, when you look at Hegel in particular, you see for him the supreme value of socialization, the need to be uh, better than the isolated savages and barbarians that he has in, in mind. We don't really know who he has in mind, 
but he has some kind of concept of the unsocialized being who never has the opportunity to develop social institutions where recognition is possible. And without that recognition, the barbarian and other uncivilized types are essentially unfree. So this is a, this is a, this is a, a typical move that without certain kinds of higher accomplishments, be they autonomy or recognition, you're not properly free. And the idler, who's that way either by temperament or through their uh, particular state of cultural development, are deprived of those opportunities. So usefulness is a key marker of the modern individual, and the idler is the person who's unable to achieve that. So that's where the tension between freedom and idleness enters in. On the one hand, there's an attraction that perhaps many people would feel to, to the, a life of idleness. But on the other side, there are philosophers arguing that with, uh, with an idle life, those accomplishments that make us free in the highest ways are, are, are precluded. And that, in a sense, condemns idleness. Brilliant. Thank you, Brian. And what's your position on this? Oh. I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a very well worked, a positive position. And I know sometimes people ask me, you know, why they should be idle. And I don't have a view along those lines. But I'm much more interested in interrogating the arguments that tell us why we shouldn't be idle, and to try to pick out the assumptions that uh, stand behind them. Of course, um, I've, I've never been drawn to this study unless I thought there was something in some way appealing about idleness. But I, I would never like to degenerate myself into a sort of a lifestyle coach and a guru of, of how to spend our times. Um, but it is remarkably interesting to me that in the modern era, a whole set of new ways of thinking about what's wrong with idling emerged. And that is really has been my focus. I think we can argue positively for idleness against those arguments, um, but not necessarily as a formal argument on behalf of them in themselves. Thank you. And I see Judy wants to respond here. Please do. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very sympathetic to what you say. And one of, the theme, one of my themes for many years has been about uh, the fact that we're living in a culture where time, there's a, there's a moral obligation to optimise time, which I think is very similar, very parallel to the kind of arguments you're making. Mm. But, you know, as a sociologist and not a philosopher, and I know I'm in a philosophy forum here, right, I read a little bit of feminist philosophy, right, and a little bit about the feminist philosophers who write about an ethics of care. And I guess what, what sort of I get from those feminists is much more a kind of relational and context-bound um, kind of notion of freedom. And I, and I do worry, um, and as any sociologist would face with a philosopher, about whether your focus is too much on sort of individual freedom and in individual autonomy rather than on, um, say, you know, relational social responsibilities of care. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to put that to you. What do you think about the, that philosophical intervention in the last, what would it be, Sarah, 20 years, 50, you know, that, that, all of that work? I couldn't disagree with that at all, and I uh, I think that one of the one of the arguments that is typically made against idleness, in some ways, at one point, would also have been made against some of the softer forms of work like care and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, and I agree with you that uh, there is this overemphasis on on the kind of the site of work as 
autonomy as individual self-realization, when, as you say, relational autonomy has become quite a significant presence in the field, doesn't necessarily stand in, in tension with the notion of, of, let's say, a different way of working. I mean, the whole idea of autonomy is a real problem from a philosophical point of view, mm-hmm. because it does it ranges from the most strict Kantian self-legislation uh, all the way to just doing what you want without any clear reason for, for it. You know, patient autonomy, irrationality is permissible in the name of autonomy. So there are all kinds of autonomy, uh, views of autonomy that aren't, in a sense, a- an enemy of the kind of work that isn't uh, about this sort of obsessive self-regard, this obsessive self-realization. Thank you, Brian. I'm going to bring in Odell. I'm just going to remind our audience that they're very welcome to type their questions into the Q&A section. Odell, over to you. Uh, really important sort of to uh, highlight this um, uh, way of setting up usefulness and idleness as in a binary opposition in a way. A uh, very uh, key political debate at the moment about who's deserving of care uh, and whether they need to be useful to be deserving of care. But I'm sort of wondering... Um, um, can you imagine a scenario where people are not idle at all, but neither are they useful? Because I'm noticing that there's a lot of laborious, very laborious leisure activity, for example, but it's not work in the way that we traditionally understand it. How would you conceptually or philosophically deal with that sort of, you know, laboriousness? Are you, are you talking about people who spend time training and in the gym and so on? Is that the kind of... Um... Could be, could be a hobby. I study classic motoring uh, enthusiasts, for example. They put in a lot of time and effort or, you know, sort of a, mm-hmm. you know, people who do craft for a hobby, but they put almost more time, more effort into that. So they're not idle, but it's not sort of useful necessarily. Yeah, well, I think that classically that might be described as leisure. And there is a f- usually a fairly cohesive relationship between leisure and work. I mean, leisure is encouraged by formal work practices, as we know, um, because without leisure, we become poor workers. We don't have the opportunity really to step back. Uh, and so, as, as you know, as a sociologist of work, uh, virtually every organized society has some kind of law insisting that people take annual leave. But it's, it's, uh, and it, it's a mixture of for the well-being of the worker and the well-being of the employer. And, and, and leisure, is, leisure is encouraged and hobbies count as leisure and there's no reason at all why they couldn't involve a considerable amount of effort. Uh, but the important thing is that they are allocated a space, but never a priority. That's, that's what I see as the positionality of that kind of effort that you're talking about. Wonderful. So I see some fantastic questions coming in through the Q&A and I want to turn to them in a moment. But first, I'm just going to ask the panel to reflect for a moment on one of the themes of the festival, shaping the post-COVID world. So we're going to start thinking about the future. And Judy, I'd like to start with you. Where do you see things heading and what do you think a better future would look like? Um. Well, I, well, I'm always asked about the future of work. We sociologists of work are always asked about this. And I think, that, you know, there's kind of three quick points I want to make. The first point I want to make is that there is no one future, right, that we're always asked about this in a very technologically determinist way, which I'll come back to, as if we're heading for one future. Actually, what we've seen, and um, Adil has already sort of 
uh, pointed to is an incredibly polarised workforce, yeah? So that during this COVID period, I think this has become even more pronounced, that on the one hand, some of us so-called white-collar knowledge workers are sitting and Zooming, and actually it hasn't been too bad if you've got a relatively nice house, and the food is being delivered and the parcels are being delivered by gig workers who are working incredibly long hours, who have very little control over their time, over their schedules. And it seems to me whenever we talk about these issues of idleness, the, you know, it's really, you know, who can afford to be idle? Who's got control over their time and schedules? We have a lot more control over our time, which is why we're willing to do this on a Saturday morning. Um, lots of other people don't have that and actually are unemployed and are only dreaming of getting back to work and earning a living. I mean, particularly in this kind of uh, period. So, so that's my sort of first point about inequality. Um, my second point is that really, uh, you know, often this overwork problem, to what to the extent that it exists, is seen as a problem caused by digital technologies, by 24-7 connectivity. And really the motivation for writing my book, Press for Time, was not dissimilar to a lot of what Brian's thinking about. I was very concerned about this culture of time use, of optimization, all of these things, but I very much wanted to make clear that this culture wasn't simply determined by digital technologies, right, which a lot of it's a lot is put down to that, but that actually we're talking about capitalist uh, relations of work, we're talking about 24-7 work, and and I've written quite a lot about Silicon Valley um, companies and this model of 24-7 work, which is kind of idealised because it's highly paid and you get wonderful food and gyms at work and all of these things, but it's a particular model of work um, in which there really is no leisure time off. You know, it's a very kind of work-oriented uh, kind of model. And the third thing, just quickly, because I know we're speeding through, mm. is that I'm often uh, asked about automation and the end of work, always, you know, is that the future? You know, that everything will you know, be robots and everything will be automated and there'll be no work and we need a universal basic income and blah, blah, blah. I have two things to say about this quickly. One is that AI and robotics are nowhere near as smart as they're presented as being. Actually, you know, it is incredibly flawed. It is not frictionless. You know, the, the technology is nowhere, you know, it's a sales pitch. It's nowhere near what it should be. And perhaps more important from a philosophical point of view is there are lots of kinds of work, not only that can't be automated, but that we don't want automated. And again, I will go back to care work and the, and the current discussion about the NHS and the work that's going on there. Of course, um, you know, data science and robotics can do what, you know, can help in incredible ways in terms of the health system. And we've seen this within COVID. But actually, I would hope that all that extra time was put into patient care, would, would, was put into reducing working hours for people working those very long, um, stressful hours. So I, I, I just want to end by saying we really need to revalue um, certain kinds of work. And, you know, we've had this debate, which I'm very happy about during this COVID period, about essential workers, that we really re should rethink who gets paid a lot of money, you know, like people in the finance sector, high-frequency traders, um, and whether all of these essential workers who, who have been essential for keeping us, you know, being able to live properly in this period, whether they're the ones who should be getting paid better and we should be thinking about their sort of working conditions. So that's the, a future that I would like is one in which we would revalue different kinds of work and remunerate 
um, different kinds of workers, shift things away from our current value system. Thank you so much. Um, Brian, I see your hand there. I think that's very interesting. Would you say that there's a difference then between the future of work for those who we might say have relatively involuntary conditions, the people you spoke about who've been supporting us throughout the pandemic, for example, and who work under very adverse conditions and so on, and those who semi-voluntarily, which is the more comfortable side that you mentioned, who nevertheless uh, are caught up in, in a work pattern that seems to be outside their control. And I'm interested when we talk about the future of work is where the mechanisms of control might lie. Uh, because uh, maybe, this is, maybe this is too philosophical for your liking because it's terribly speculative, but there's something about the desire for recognition and social prestige that keeps people going far more than is healthy for them much of the time, the way their identities become entangled with their projects and where it seems like a good thing to work all, all the time. Uh, uh, perhaps there's a competitive advantage to that. Perhaps it just looks good in itself within certain professions. So is it, is it, is it realistic to think that we could really change the norms such that that kind of work would begin to seem as foolish as it really is? Um, I have two quick things to say about that. I mean, one thing is that status is very tied up with money. And I, I think mm. there is a real problem um, in that young computer scientists at Stanford go into Facebook and get paid 100000 You know, I mean, if they were not paid what they were being paid, the status of, you know, AI and, you know, finance, you know, the, I think it would quickly lose status, right? If we actually paid kind of, um, people in finance, a fraction of what they're currently being paid, the status uh, would reduce very quickly. So I think there's a real nexus between actually status and pay that I very much want to see critiqued. But, I mean, the other thing I would say, and forgive me if this is a bit glib, but, you know, in my experience, actually, you know, men seem more concerned about status than women, actually. I mean, I agree with you about the business about identity and status, but I wonder how much it's to part of it. Anyway, I'm not saying... You know, just a small part of it actually is to do with the construction of masculinity and femininity and the extent to which kind of men identify with work and their profession and that women somehow do end up doing the lion's share of caring, whether it's for children or for elder care. You know, I'm very aware of this at the moment because I'm in the latter group now. But our lives are much more kind of strict, structured around these kind of generational issues. And somehow I think it it does make for a, a, a slightly different um, set of values. Mm, thank you. Odell? Uh, I just wanted to comment on this idea that people could just see that it's foolish. Um, and to bring in management, that there's a lot of deliberate effort and expertise uh, and resources dedicated to constructing a symbolic order mm. so that things make sense in a certain way. So I don't know that there's complete autonomy in individuals sort of seeing things as they are, but rather we're all embedded in these, you know, um, uh, ways of seeing the world that understanding our places in it with tentacles that are very structured, you know, sort of very deliberate. So just wanted to sort of bring that in as a factor to, you know, contend with in thinking how we make decisions. Uh, and yet, and yet, if I may, I think one of the, uh, well-studied phenomena of, uh, of, 
of uh, of uh, management is this burnout factor. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I've ever witnessed it, but my understanding is that it is often considered to be a moment of sort of self-awareness, of, self, of self-realization. I accept that it's probably not greatly admired by those who haven't yet burnt out to see some weakling kind of fall, fall by the wayside. But I wonder if that's considered uh, as a certain kind of moment of self-revelation about the, uh, the, the craziness of the life that was demanded by the profession that once upon a time seemed all-absorbing. Could be, but even the, I think, label of burnout, for example, frames the situation in a certain way, as opposed to, for example, I've been exploited to death, right? To call it that you have, I've burnt out, for example, thinks of the human as a resource and it's just sort of given all it has. It, and the, the, the question raises an empirical one, and I've seen that play out in different ways. There are contexts in which people burn out, but then they blame themselves for mm-hmm. not being up to the task. So that it becomes an individual sort of um, insufficiency sort of in their view. And there are ways if the repertoire is there for them to sort of say, look, I can interpret this in this way. It enables people to see it as a turning point and to see the foolishness. Um, So I think it's the availability of these different ways of seeing uh, across different groups of workers that then will define the politics of it. But anyway, I remain (laughs) <laughs> thank, thank you all. Yeah, could I just, so we've got a great question about burnout from, from an audience member as well, but I wondered whether we could also just bring in here uh, the issue of UBI, universal basic income. So that's that's a question that's come in. So Brian, you, you asked about sort of institutional change. How, how could we think about a future of work that encourages different patterns of behavior? So what do the panel think about UBI proposals? Are you in favor? Do you think this would answer some of the issues that we've been engaging with uh, this morning? Should I turn to you, Judy, to start with? Yeah, I've got strong views about this, but I, I just Please. want to say, though, in terms of the burnout, that we really mm. think about workers in the NHS. I mean, I've been reading that actually the, what do you call it, the trauma of overwork, I can't, you know, that actually we're going to have a completely traumatized NHS. So if we want a sort of living current example of burnout, we've got it kind of staring us in the face. Sorry, I just wanted to get that in. Mm, I mean, you know, I think that the debate about universal basic income is is very interesting. I mean, I think my scepticism about it um, was really heightened by the fact that various gurus in Silicon Valley, tech gurus, started saying that this was great, that they would do whatever they wanted with the technology and we would just deal with all these other people. You know, we'll work our guts out day and night in these companies and we'll just provide a universal basic income for all these people that are affected by our technologies. And I think we need to take more control over how we're using technology, uh, the nature of uh, work and jobs. And I worry that It's a bit of a, again, a technologically determinist argument. It kind of assumes that a lot of jobs are going to be automated and so we're going to need this, rather than thinking about what kind of welfare state do we want, what kind of benefits do we want. And certainly I've seen a lot of very good work by feminist economists who are not keen on UBI, that, that want to have the state have better care, social care plans, um, you know, better state benefits. You know, it's an issue about whether you want to give money to individuals in that way or whether you want to restructure um, the state and welfare. And that seems to me the debate we should be having and not this assumption that somehow um, jobs are going to be automated out of existence. Great. Thank you. Does anyone else want to come in on UBI? Um, 
I also ha don't have a definitive sort of answer uh, to this in the sense that I, I've heard arguments from both sides, but I think one of the potential opportunities afforded to us by the pandemic is the maybe um, the, the challenge we can now pose to the typical justifications for people who've fallen through the cracks. So it relates to Brian's sort of, for example, work about idleness and sort of that the idle deserve to be poor and they don't deserve the care because we've, we've seen all sorts of workers and we will see more, unfortunately, including from uh, even among academics, etc. So I think there's a moment here maybe to redefine the relationship of collective care for individuals and safety nets, etc. Um, but on the flip side of this, work is also a source of meaning, a source of accomplishment, right? Kind of a, so I think job quality needs to be also on the forefront of the agenda because otherwise, actually, there are a lot of people out there who whose problem is not overwork, but not enough work, right? Sort of a, and so we can have universal basic income. And if that's treated as taking care of that all thing, you know, the ones who don't have enough work or enough good quality work, then that becomes a problem in and of itself. So that. I don't know that Great. that's very productive, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And, and I wonder if now we could turn to a question from Will Jennings about um, idleness and creativity. So um, I'll, I'll start with Brian here. So, so Will writes, uh, whether that's in the context of the arts or just creativity and work or living, and that downtime space, which is required as part of reflexive creativity, but from the outside may appear as idleness. So do you have anything to add here, Brian, on the relationship between idle time and and the capacity or space for creativity? I do. Uh, it's a tricky one, this, because it, it may sound it, it may sound counterintuitive at first, but I think idleness wouldn't really be idleness if we were trying to instrumentalize it as a space for creative opportunity. Mm -hmm. So that 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 attractive though it might be, you know, to to, to give space to your creative capacities and to find some new work and new ideas emerging from that. But that, that is not really the idleness in this kind of, oh, I suppose you could say, uh, almost confrontational sense that the philosophers dislike, of people who really step away in from, from the obligations to realise themselves as autonomous, useful beings. I think it's, it's another way of doing something that's clearly a very different kind of work, but it is at the same time a means to an end. Um, of course, we, I recognize that you know, nobody can be properly creative if they're overburdened with work, but idleness for the sake of uh, creativity is, is idleness as, as a certain kind of uh, well-used leisure. I'm sure I won't be fully uh, agreeable to the question on that, but that's, that's how I, I think it divides up when I think about it. And I wonder whether I can put this question to, to, to the panel while we're on the topic. So are you, as academics, able to take the lessons from your own research and apply them to your own situation? So do you, Brian, for example, try to model, um, you know, a life that doesn't take too seriously the sort of... Uh, emphasis on strenuous activity and so on and um Odell and Judy do you take lessons from your own research about work into your own lives I think I, I think I've got the poorest self-understanding of every, anyone you're ever going to meet so I can't really answer that well but I I do I, I do think that one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this when when I got onto the project was because I 
I found myself working too much and I didn't know why. And I felt driven and I was surrounded in a society by people driven by work. So uh, it's, it's, it's not because I think that the other side is, is true. It's, it's more that I felt the drive, this work ethic thing in a way that troubled me. And this was just my effort in my own way, using the tools of my own academic training to try to come to terms with it. So no, I haven't become idle since figuring out the beginning and end of the book on idleness. Uh, Odell. Yeah. Well, this has been the year of uh, living at work, right? Sort of a, um, and so the structure agency problem, I'll sort of pass the buck to the structure again, because I think maybe even asking ourselves whether we are adjusting ourselves sort of downplays the structural constraints on what's expected of us, right? So, and I think the output control in academia is very real. So if you're left with the task of regulating that so that your well-being, the mindfulness, for example, becomes the way you resist the very real, tangible constraints, then it's just even more work for us, <laughs> right? So I'll sort of wiggle out of that question that way, if I may. That's a good one. Judy? Um, maybe two things. I mean, I think a lot about technology, and so I like to think that I'm not susceptible to self-tracking technologies. I mean, I, I sort of teach about this. I'm very aware about how much data is being produced on the self and how it can be helpful, but also can be sources of pressure. So I, I think a lot about um, those kinds of technologies that encourage working on the self in ways that I think can be very problematic. But I guess the other thing I'd like to say is, and I think it's become even clearer in this period, is how much we're all missing sociability, both sociability of friends, but sociability at work. And again, I would say as um, you know, just reflecting what was just said is that, you know, work is not only a source of, can be a source of lots of satisfaction and identity, but two other things are important, I think. I mean, one is that we've all experienced, um, you know, time in a different way, right? And one of the one of the things we sort of, you know, miss about work is somehow having a schedule, as having a, you know, us, us of us who've been home all day, having a structure to the day, right? And that that's very important, I think. And, and it's as well been always something discussed in terms of the unemployed, right? One of the worst things about being unemployed is that you don't have a structure to the day that time is experienced in different ways. So I think a lot about that and how we have drifted into this work all the time because we can't separate work time and other time. So it does make me reflect about time and how to um, divide that up. But also, um, you know, the other thing about work is that even often, you know, lots of retail work that people think is kind of empty and useless and whatever, I mean, it is, is an important source of sociability, right? That when you're depressed, actually going to a workplace where there are other people is just incredibly important source of, you know, support and uh, recognition, even though they're not, you know, they may not be rich relationships or whatever. So I think, again, it's important to to look at work in the in those positive ways as well. And I think the sociability issue and friendship is something people have been thinking about a lot in the last twelve months. 
Mm, yeah, that's that's brilliant. And and coming back to one of the issues you raised earlier, Judy, about generations. So we have a question from John Bryant, who's retired, who asks a general question for everyone on the panel. How do we properly acknowledge those who are liberated from paid work through retirement and then offer their time by volunteering in a thousand different roles, either in community organizations or within their own families? So how do we accommodate retirement into this picture? Uh, should I start with you, Odell? Uh, only in the sense that uh, uh, I think this is a really important research area that yeah. has so far been ignored. And in my earlier comments sort of related to this, um, huge uh, amounts of very valuable work, uh, vast uh, uh, sort of uh, reservoir of skills and wisdom, experience, uh, not just from the retired community, but from sort of uh, demographics who are for one reason or the other, either fully or partially left out of the labor market. Uh, I think as sociologists, we have so far failed, I would say, um, uh, to study this as essentially as we should have. Um, a really important sort of engine that uh, keeps our uh, charity sector going, for example, and uh, and hobbies and leisure in, in the very deeply laborious way they're done, especially uh, create meaning and belonging and community for many of us. So absolutely to be cherished and to be researched uh, in the years to come. Thank you. Judy? No, I mean, I completely agree. And I think the sort of ageism, if we want to use that word in Britain, is really sort of terrible. And I notice that even when I go to the States, you know, that people are, you know, I mean, there's positive and negative things about it, because in the States, people don't retire because there's no welfare. But, you know, this notion of kind of retirement and how we think about it, I, I you know, I think is kind of different in Europe and different in other um, countries. And I mean, again, one of the things I've written about in terms of the overwork culture is its emphasis on youth. I mean, it's very striking when you go into big tech companies that the average age of some of these um, so-called big five in Silicon Valley is 30. I mean, it's literally a world of young guys, you know, um, and, it, and, it, and th this notion that genius and creativity are exclusively uh, produced by youth, I think is a, is a shocking um, notion that we really have to counter, you know, that somehow you're less creative when you're older or something. Brian. I must say, I'm slightly uneasy with the trajectory of this discussion because it seems to me that it's completely connected with the idea of work worship and work recognition. Uh, you know, people who are aggrieved because uh, they want to work all their lives and they want to and they want the, the sort of the identity recognition that they believe they invest in it. Whereas I, I feel that it would be much more useful just to be skeptical about the desire for work and, and, and not to do voluntary work if you find it gives you dissatisfaction instead of demanding that it gains a prestige that no, <laughs> nobody wants to give to it. And, and I, I, don't, I don't think we're talking about caregiving here. I'd be very, I would be very surprised to hear if grandparents, for example, who are involved in childminding aren't cherished and loved for all they do for their children. So as I say, I just would, I'd like to set a slightly different tone because I think we're saturating the discussion with the uh, unquestioned uh, value of work and the importance that all of it be recognised in a really positive way. That's really interesting. So, well, we've got a question here, which might might uh, get us thinking in that direction. So uh, we've got a question from Jeremy, 
what would the panelists do if they won the lottery and didn't have to work for money? <laughs> so that sort of gets us thinking about how we would spend our time if we weren't um, uh, pushed in those sorts of, of, of ways. So Brian, would you like to come in here on that question? Uh, I, I suppose uh, I'd like to be disburdened of something like a huge sum of money like that. I understand how distracting it would be I do enjoy what I do most of the time, and I don't think it would change really my life in any significant way. Um, me personally, that is. Yeah. I do. I literally don't know how to answer that, um, except that all my mind might maybe maybe Brian is right. I'm immediately thinking to things I could do with others, for others, for community, for those who are less well off than me. But maybe there's sort of an inherent drive for usefulness in that. And maybe that's something I need to check it, you know, sort of with myself. So thank you for that prompt, Brian. You know, it's probably worth thinking about for me. Well, well I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'd like to think, I mean, I'm just so well aware, you know, well aware that, you know, so many young people, have, you know, have, haven't got work at the moment and so many um, doctoral students and master's students, I mean, there, you know, there are no internships, that, you know, that I, I would like to think that I would contribute to paid internships, which, you know, something, I, you know, which is a sort of class issue and I heard, um, oh, God, I can't think of his name now, Satya, someone who's just written a book recently about, you know, British colonialism, you know, was, was talking about the fact that internships are a way that, you know, middle-class kids get the best jobs and, you know, we should have a lot more, you know, paid access for transition for people. So I'd like, I think there's loads of good things one could do with the money, actually, at this point in time. Great. And, and um, we've got an interesting question here from Alex Douglas about exploitation. So uh, could the panel speak about exploitation and the role it should play in our understanding of work? Are there useful measures of exploitation we should apply in our thinking about the nature of work? Uh, so that gets us thinking again about different types of work and how, 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 how we live in quite different and polarised lives. I wonder if I could go first to you here, Odol. Well, I've always been struck by how for sociologists exploitation is such a dirty word you know it's the ultimate if there was a sin you know that would be the sin uh, but for economists it's a positive word right exploitation means using a specific resource <laughs> for productive ends and I think that's sort of revealing in and of itself this productivist approach there is of course a lot that's already been established uh, to counter exploitation the labor law legislation is all about that sort of working hours, sort of the conditions in which you can, you know, you're allowed to work, you're not allowed to work, you're allowed to employ. Um, so I think our leg our legisl legislative and cultural protections about what's fair are already sort of resistance towards uh, against uh, exploitation. I suspect this is where sort of maybe where Brian is coming from. Maybe the cultural sort of resistance could be upped a bit. You know, sort of this valorization of you know, uh, extreme forms of work, etc. So maybe there is more room to play there. I don't know where that sort of counter narrative is supposed to come from. I don't quite see sort of a, a, a discourse at the given moment that will emanate and gain momentum in, in, in sort of utilizing the idea of exploitation and mobilizing people around that. I'm not very optimistic about um, uh, the prospects of that. 
uh, although I'm of course very sympathetic to that to that as a you know, as an academic. Hmm. Brian, I, I'm sorry to say I don't have a very technical understanding of exploitation, which I think is what the the question is looking for from the panel. So I, I will defer uh, on that, if I may. Yeah, of course, Judy. I mean. You know, for me, exploitation, um, you know, one of the counters to exploitation is the case that, that recently was won by Uber drivers, which I think is just an incredibly important case, right, which is workers taking a collective case saying actually to be at the beck and call of Uber is incredibly exploitative. We would like to be treated as employees and have, you know, some health insurance and some time off and some control over our work. And I think we can talk about degrees of exploitation and how we, you know, and I'm also very, um, you know, thrilled about the fact that there's the beginnings of unionisation in some of the big tech companies, you know, that workers themselves are, you know, becoming more aware of the fact that they're working very hard and sometimes these companies aren't doing the sort of things that they would like them to be doing, like, you know, facial recognition or military technology or whatever. So, I mean, I, I you know, it, it needs to come from, you know, both from the bottom up and also from sort of government setting standards um, and labour regulation. I think those things are very important. Mm. Great. And we've got an interesting, uh, well, we've got quite a few questions coming in, um, for example, from Wesley Chan about uh, bullshit jobs. Uh, so how do you respond to David Graeber's notion of yeah. bullshit jobs, which seems to describe a growing number of the sorts of jobs that aren't useful, but are, for example, highly paid? Uh, so I saw you nodding there, Odell. Do you want to start us off? <laughs> Not really, because uh, I, I can't say that I'm in full agreement with that depiction in that the system valorizes certain outputs. So in that sense, a lot of these jobs are not bullshit jobs for the system. Now, you can have an issue with the system, and maybe that's why I'm sort of not seeing the prospects of talking about exploitation so great. Mm. Maybe that's the pessimist in me. Mm. But I, I think that sort of designation of bullshit jobs sort of assumes some of us are in positions to pass judgment. And also it, I think, lacks sort of a systemic understanding of how it all fits together. So then you can target certain groups of workers who are actually working there, if I may also use a, a sort of slang, their asses off, and sort of designate their jobs as bullshit jobs. Um, so I have issues. I understand the sentiment, uh, but I don't think uh, it it's, gives us a lot of leverage as a critique. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, I, you know, I think it was, I mean, you know, it was very cool of David Graeber to use that term and it got a lot of um, airtime because kind of people loved it but it don't, didn't seem to me it was a kind of subtle enough really analysis of how different kinds of work are valued and certainly didn't um, I, as far as I know have a kind of feminist sensibility or, or you know lots of other sensibilities really about how we think about different kinds of work it was kind of a glib Thing about finance and I mean I you know to some extent I agree with that because he was trying to get to get across the notion that certain times of certain types of work are just phenomenally overpaid you know and in, in you know in that sense we do need to have a taxation system so that you know Amazon and Zoom you know that there are certain um, companies that are just making absurd amounts of money you know and and you know, I, I sort of find it extraordinary that some of these people who are the richest people in the world pay their workers so poorly. I mean, the, the Amazon contrast, I just find daily extraordinary that you can be so wealthy 
and not give your workers a pay rise. So, you know, that's exploitation by any kind of measure, really. Thank you. And I'm going to bring um, together two questions. I think we'll end with, with Brian here on idleness. So, <laughs> um, Brian, we've had a, a question from Matilda Nelson about whether we need work to motivate us. And then we also have a question from Richard Stevens, which is just a plea. How do we do idleness? So before we head off, <laughs> would you mind helping us with those? To motivate us to do, to do what, though? And what would be wrong with not having motivation? And, and, and that is my contribution to liveness. Uh, I, I might just, just leave it with that question. What would, it, what, would it, what, would, what would not being motivated be like? And are we sure it would be so, so terrible? And I'm afraid I can't make any recommendations for how to be idle because if, if I think surely uh, I'll get some consensus for the first time in this session from my sociological colleagues here is that we just can't reverse the socialization that makes us want to work like demons all the time. It's just, just not that easy. So if we have been socialized in this particular structure that we, we, we have been, then being idle is just not something that is very easy to do. There are all kinds of negative psychological experiences that go with it, agitation, restlessness. The question for me that I never fully settled for myself is whether that's natural or whether it's the product of reaction in the context of, of overtraining, you know, the restlessness. But I guess, you know, in a different sphere, those people who train for physical feats all the time feel a, a tremendous physical agitation if they can't train. I just wonder if there's an analogous experience for those of us who try our hand at idleness but find ourselves drawn back to work to doing something and so forth and my claim i think i think it's a pretty it's hardly my claim i think it's a pretty shared view is that uh, that it's the it's the education that we get in performing tasks and being rewarded for them that makes us re really bad at the idleness we think we might like to have more of right thank you yes judy I mean, but also the education. I mean, I, I also think we really need to push the notion of resources, right? Because actually being able to read and enjoying reading, yeah, is something that, you you know, you have the resources when you're young or not to, to enjoy that. And so for us, the problems of having a lot of time, I mean, I've started reading Little Dorrit, right, because I've got too much time. I don't know what to do with myself. It's a pleasurable activity, yeah, but that's to do with having a lot of kind of resources built up in me in order to be able to, you know, to, to experience the time in a particular way. So I think it's very differentially experienced. A surfeit of time, is, you know, is to do with, you know, material resources as well. I just think it's important to point that in. Well, thank you so much to our fantastic panel. That was a wonderful discussion. And thanks to all of you for joining us. We had some brilliant questions about whether contemplation is work and what counts as hard work. Uh, mm. I hope you didn't feel like listening to us was too much like hard work. And we're very grateful for all of you for joining us. So please do take a look at the LSE's festival website. You'll see a wonderful series of live and pre-recorded events there. And do join the uh, Forum for Philosophy on Tuesday. Uh, it's going to be our first Histories of Thinking series and it's free and open to all. So until then, thanks again and goodbye.